Have you ever wondered what it's like to witness a murder? Forrest grabbed the knife and then just stabbed Johnny in one motion. Or how it feels to be shot. I was immediately hit by a barrage of bullets. Or how you would react if your spouse hired someone to kill you. And he was to put me in a grave with a bullet wound on my head. These are the stories you'll hear on the podcast called What Was That Like? True stories told by the actual person who went through it. You'll hear from a stalking victim. Came back upstairs and when I came back and turned the corner into my room, I saw him standing there. You'll hear from a man who was kidnapped and tortured. I would do anything, say anything, to simply get away. And you'll hear actual 911 calls. Take a deep breath. Oh my God! Take a deep breath. Oh my God! Take a deep breath. Oh my God! Real people in unreal situations. Search for What Was That Like on any podcast app or at whatwasthatlike.com. This podcast contains adult themes and language, and some of the things that we discuss may be disturbing to some listeners. In this podcast, we discuss sexual assault, torture, race, and murder. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to Fruit Loops episode 136. Bienvenidos, bitches. Buiti binafi. And thank you so much for listening. Yeah. Fruit Loops is a podcast about true crimes committed by people of color and the victims that we don't hear or know much about. Contrary to popular belief, not all serial killers are straight, cis, able bodied white dudes. What? Uh uh-uh, uh. There are many well documented <laughs> cases of serial killers of color, and Fruit Loops is a podcast all about them. We will take deep dives into the fascinating lives and crimes of serial killers and true crimes committed by people of color and the victims that the media and entertainment commonly leave out because the news is racist. <laughs> Allegedly. And we are Wendy and Beth. She's Wendy, a black Latinx woman, and I'm Beth. And I just happen to be white. It's not her fault. <laughs> We're not journalists, investigators, or psychologists. Just a couple of gals interested in true crime. Also, the opinions expressed in this podcast are just that, our opinions. Please send any questions or comments to fruitloopspod at gmail.com or leave us a voicemail at 602-935-6294. And we may feature it on a future episode. Also, our website is fruitloopspod.com and we use Fruit Loops Pod for all of our social media. The footnotes for each episode can be found on our website. Plus, check it out for the different ways that you can support the show and become a Fruit Loops patron. Yeah. So, who are we talking about today, Beth? Today we're talking about Thierry Paulin, a.k.a. the Monster of Montmartre, mm. a French serial killer active from 1984 to 1987. This subject was suggested to us by SitarB23 on Instagram. Ooh, well, thank you, SitarB on yeah. Instagram. <laughs> Uh, 
but before we get into it, how you doing? Still stressed. <laughs> hello, hello. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Uh, is there anything um, giving you respite? Do you have any moments of? Uh, I mean, it doesn't. It doesn't make it all better. But that was nice. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, we won the Best Black True Crime Podcast Award. That, yes, that was, that was very, very awesome. Yeah. It was so unexpected. We were like <laughs> d- moseying on into the, to the live show. Like, you know, it'll be nice to be there and see who else is there. And then all of a sudden, they're rolling the tape <laughs> and our name gets called. I'm we're like, like texting Beth like, what the hell? So surprised. Um, but obviously, we could not have done anything any of it without of without all of you guys yeah um so yeah that 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 does feel good that all this hard work is um paying off we're going places yeah <laughs> and we got a live show coming up at she podcasts that's right that's yeah. right so and, uh, uh, actually when this show drops it'll be like the next day <laughs> Oh, yeah, too late to get a ticket, probably. Oh, dang it. <laughs> but actually, so it's the we whole got some weekend. good stuff going on. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So um, that's good. It sounds like you've got an attitude of gratitude, <laughs> which is a great way to prevent yourself from getting too far down the hole of despair. Yeah, yeah, true that. <laughs> At least for me, anyway. Yeah. Um, well, that's good. How are um, you doing? I think I'm doing all right. Uh, still here. Um, still here and still queer. Get used to it. Um, no, I, <laughs> I'm trying to think. I, in my mind, I am stressed as well, but there are just some hurdles. As soon as I get over these hurdles, I feel like it'll be smooth sailing, right? Like I have a presentation on Tuesday and then Friday we have the live show. And then right. as soon as those things are done, <sighs> I can kind of relax, relax a little bit. A yeah. Little bit, yeah. Um, so I'm looking forward to that. Cool. But since we're both here and we're both all right enough, uh, (laughs) we're going to mosey on over to the listener letter portion of our show. Hello, angels. Thank you. What is in the bag, Beth? So I just wanted to say thank you to Vindel89 and Because That's Why for your five-star reviews. Yes, thank you. And I believe one of those reviewers mentioned that they were Garifuna. Did you see that? I think so, too. Yeah. Yeah. And I was like, oh fam what's up we probably cousins or something i just thought that was so cool so yeah, anyway very thank cool. you both for the five-star reviews and those are for you is there yeah. anything else in that bag well aurora our pal in the true crime space for murder murder news has ah. been living her best life traveling with her bay and mm-hmm. sent us an ig dm on her trip and she said i couldn't help but think of you ladies yesterday my <laughs> husband and i are doing a little road trip around Spain to celebrate the end of the show they were filming nearby. We stopped in Sevilla, which is apparently where they keep what may or may not be the bones of that motherfucker, Christopher Columbus. Oh, <laughs> God. There's a big tomb there that he doesn't deserve, so mm. I sent my regards. And she gave him the double finger and shared the pic with us. <laughs> yes, it was beautiful. Oh, you love to see it, folks. <laughs> Aurora also said, I also thought the history of the tomb was rather interesting. It was his dying wish to be buried in the new world, but no one wanted him. So... (laughs) (laughs) Fuck you! (laughs) Maybe it's him, maybe it's not. Either way, fuck that guy. (laughs) Absolutely. 
so appropriate. Yeah. <laughs> and she shared a link of the history of his tomb. And uh, I'm going to read up about that. Yeah. It's uh, okay. You let me know what it says. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Christopher Columbus really was a bad guy, you guys. And, gr- and hearing the story growing up, this stuff, it didn't really compute. But we just accepted this yeah. white guy came over here and discovered discovered the new world. Well, wait a minute. There was already people here. And uh, everybody else, all the black uh, people from Africa and Asians, I'm pretty sure had already been here and didn't do the fuck shit or foolishness that uh, Columbus did. Yeah. Also, um, he was like a rapist and um, yeah, he was just a terrible, person. terrible human being. So rest in all the piss and venereal diseases, <laughs> Columbus. And Aurora, thanks for sharing your trip with us. Yeah, awesome. thank you. Um, this particular week, we don't have any new patrons, but as Beth said, we won the award for Best Black True Crime Podcast um, from the Black Podcast Awards. And we couldn't have done it without any of you listening, without our patrons, our Patreons and folks who have just been rocking with us yeah. um, on all the spaces in in all the ways. And we're so, so grateful. So hip hop air horns to you. All of if you. you are listening. Yeah. Thank you. We love you guys so much and we appreciate you. So now we're going to take a quick break and get into the story when we come back. I want to take a moment to tell you about my podcast, Carol Costello Presents Blind Rage. In 1984, a woman named Phyllis Cottle was abducted in broad daylight, tortured, and left to die in a burning car in Akron, Ohio. At the time, I was a rookie reporter covering this horrific story. Since then, I've reported every kind of crime imaginable. I've been able to leave most of them at work, but not this one. The one that buried itself under my skin and stayed put. Phyllis Cottle was a badass woman, and I want to tell you her story. A production of Evergreen Podcasts and signature title of the Killer Podcast Network, you can find Carol Costello Presents Blind Rage wherever you get your podcasts. Discover more great true crime and paranormal programming at KillerPodcast.com. Hi, I'm Sean McCabe. And I'm Carrie McCabe. We are, well, married, obviously, (laughs) but we're also obsessed with the darker side of things. True crime stories, alien abductions, poltergeists. If it leaves you scratching your head and keeping those lights on at night, we want to hear about it. That's why we host the podcast Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie. Every week, we bring our listeners a true story guaranteed to send chills down your spine, from history's most brutal serial killers to the mystery of spontaneous human combustion. Yep, lots of these stories leave unanswered questions behind, and you'll get to poke through the rubble of the evidence with a hardened skeptic and... Someone whose mind is more open to fun. Yeah, that's what I was going to (laughs) say. You can find Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie wherever you get your podcasts, and on social media at Ain't It Scary. Come play with us.
This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp Online Therapy. People don't always realize that physical symptoms like headaches, teeth grinding, and even digestive issues can be indicators of stress. And let's not forget about doom scrolling, sleeping too little, sleeping too much, undereating, and overeating. Okay, so the copy here says to talk about my experience with stress. Oh boy, <laughs> do you have an hour? Uh, where do I begin? <laughs> Work, bills, life, family. I could go podcast. on for a very, yeah, <laughs> podcast, a very long time. And I actually do though in therapy, which is so helpful for me so I can manage, deal, and get through it. Stress shows up in all kinds of ways and in a world that's telling you to do more, sleep less, and grind all the time. Here's your reminder to take care of yourself, do less, and maybe try some therapy. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's more affordable than in-person therapy. Give it a try and see if online therapy can help lower your stress. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp and Fruit Loop Serial Killers of Color. Listeners get 10% off their first month at BetterHelp.com slash fruit. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash fruit. All right, guys, it's it's time for me to come clean. It's okay. it's time for me to tell the truth. Right. It's time for me to spill the beans. Okay. It's time <laughs> to fess up. It's time to keep it a buck. Keep it 100. Are you going to get to it? Oh, uh, yes, yes, yes. So sometimes after dark, I sneak away and play Best Fiends. Others may wonder about my mysterious disappearances. They say, who does she think she is? David Blaine? David Copperfield? I say none of the above. In fact, I'm having so much fun playing Best Fiends. Ever heard? Heard of it? Why, yes, I have. <laughs> I love Best Fiends. I love collecting the little monsters when you play so I can level up my fiends. Also, I love going in for the super long matches to free up the board and beat levels. Ooh. I am happy to report that I am on level 440. That's amazing. <laughs> okay, friend, I see you flexing over there. <laughs> now, Best Fiends is a free-to-download mobile puzzle game with thousands of exciting new levels for new adventures and challenges every time you play. I am on on level 304. Beth, tell them about the offline play. Yes, of course. <laughs> there is offline play, so you don't even need Wi-Fi or the internet. Oh, good. So download your new favorite getaway, Best Fiends, for free today on the App Store or Google Play. You'll even get $5 worth of in-game rewards when you reach level 5. That's friends without the R, Best Fiends. And we're back. Remind us, Beth, who is our subject today? <laughs> Today we're talking about Thierry Paulin, a.k.a. the Monster of Montmartre. During the 1980s, Paris's 18th arrondissement was under attack. Someone was killing innocent elderly women and the whole city was on alert. Zut alors! <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> Too much Disney. It really <laughs> fucked us all up, didn't it? Uh, now we're going to get into some stats. So Pauline's AKAs are Old Lady's Killer and the Monster of Montmartre, as uh, Beth said. And she's been to <laughs> France, so she probably is, says way better than me anyway. Anyway, victims, there were 19. So rest in love and power to all of them. We're going to read all of the names. Um, Germaine Petitot. 91 actually survived. Anna Barbier Pontu, 83. Suzanne Foucault, 89. Uh, Iona Sergaresco, 71. Alice Benaim, 84. Marie Choi, 80. Maria Miko Diaz, 75. Jean Laurent, 81. Paulet Victor, 77. André Ladame, 77. 
Yvonne Coron, 83, Yvonne Chabé, 77, Margem Jeblum, 81, François Vendôme, 83, Virginie Labratante, 76, Ludmila Liberman, 85, Rachel Cohen, 79, Berthe Finalteri, 87, who survived. That last one is Genevieve Germont, 73. Excellent job at pronunciation. Thank you so much. As far as I know, I mean, I'm American, but it sounded good to me. Oh, thank you. <laughs> le point. Le point. I, did, I did listen to the Little Mermaid soundtrack a little bit because, you know, that French chef is really killing it. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, so just to warm up. Uh, so Beth says it helped. So now we're going to get into the setting. Take us there, Beth. Well, Montmartre in the 18th arrondissement or district in Paris is the setting. Montmartre is located on top of a hill in Paris. Ooh. Beginning in the mid-19th century, it became a popular place thanks to the opening of many cafes, cabarets, and dancing halls. Cabaret! <laughs> um, it's on my bucket list to be a cabaret performer someday. Um, during the pandemic, I was looking for all kinds of cabaret classes, but Never had the balls to sign up. Anyway, in the second half of the 19th century and early 20th century, many artists lived, worked, or had studios in and around Montmartre, including artists such as Degas, Matisse, Picasso, Renoir, Toulouse, La Trec, and Van Gogh. Today, Montmartre is an officially designated historic district with limited development allowed in order to maintain its historic character. Downhill to the southwest is the red light district of Pigalle, where the Moulin Rouge is located. <gasps> it's real! It's real, yeah. I'm so happy. Oh my God, I recently was listening to that soundtrack too. Oh. Oh my God, I'm so excited. <laughs> the LGBT scene in Paris is particularly active in the neighborhoods of Le Marais, Montmartre, and Pigalle. Uh, that sounds really cool. Um, again, yeah. live show. Uh, and <laughs> safe spaces where um, queer people can like just live and do their thing. Yeah. Is, is, you love to see it. So cool. down downhill from Montmartre, but still in the 18th arrondissement in Chateau Rouge or Quartier Africain, a metro stop and market that's full of African vendors, restaurateurs, and tradesmen frequented by predominantly black shoppers. You're not going to believe this, but <laughs> France was a colonial power and mm. did engage in and propagate chattel slavery. No. Yeah. Have you read this? <laughs> Have you read this? <laughs> Alexander Hamilton, yeah. <laughs> Damn. <laughs> Slavery in France ended on the mainland before it ended in its colonies. The institutionalized enslavement of human beings from African heritage was first abolished by the French Republic in 1794. But Napoleon revoked that decree in 1802 after the signing of the Peace of Amiens with the United Kingdom. There had been revolts in the colonies and lobbying by colonial businessmen. And ultimately, Napoleon, encouraged by his wife, Josephine, who originated from and owned many assets in Martinique, legalized slavery in the colonies, returned to France as part of the Treaty of Amiens. France re-abolished the institution of slavery in its colonies in 1848 with a general and 
unconditional emancipation. Regardless, colonial imperialists and white supremacist attitudes did not end. Arthur de Gobineau was a French aristocrat best known for helping to legitimize racism. Yeah, you know these dumbass ideas about race? Let's yeah. put them in a book and make people yeah. believe them. Yeah. So there you in go. the in the immediate aftermath of the revolutions of 1848, he wrote an essay on the inequality of the human races. Trash. Yep. <laughs> Basura. In it, he argued that aristocrats were superior to commoners and that aristocrats possessed more Aryan genetic traits because of less interbreeding with inferior races. Yeah, are you the guys who marry your cousins because the race you want to keep the bloodlines of royalty pure? Get out of my face with that. France eventually developed an approach to dealing with ethnic problems that stands in contrast to that of many other advanced industrialized countries. France maintains a colorblind model of public policy. Now, to be French, according to the first article of the French Constitution of 1958, by the way, take notes, United States, we don't have to use the old one all the time. <laughs> well, we can amend it. Anyway, 1958 is to be a citizen of France, regardless of one's origin, race, or religion. Essentially, any human being is entitled to the benefit of being human being, in theory. In France, theoretically, there is no race. They ignore any reference to it. Citizens are just French. But this is essentially an erasure of people's identity and history. And if you don't see color, then you don't see me. Me and bitch, this conversation is over. <laughs> so I was reading a little bit about this, and um, I guess World War II really freaked them out because of the what the Germans did, what the Germans so did to the Jewish people, mm-hmm. and so they don't even like talking about race. Yeah, that's my understanding. I have a friend; um, she's was born in Haiti, but she grew up in Paris, and is very. Fr- it's fr- she talks about just how frustrating it was. Like I remember talking to her about. Oh, Donald Trump is president. What are we going to do? Right. Right. We made it through. But she was like, girl, try living in a country where they don't even get to discuss it. Yeah. Yeah. No kidding. Yeah. Yeah. So um, it is very interesting. Makes it difficult. Yeah. Yeah, Difficult to. Yeah. Because your existence. Have any conversations about it. Yeah, exactly. That's what Fruit Loops is here to do. Ready, everybody? So instead of race, France uses geographic descriptors. Police classify people as, for example, European, African, Asiatic, Indo-Pakistani, Latino-American, and Polynesian, which Mm. uh, I don't know. You know, what's if you can do that, why can't you talk about race? (laughs) That's what I'm saying. That's what I'm saying. I'm like, come on. Absolutely. (laughs) Right. To counter problems of ethnic disadvantage, they have constructed policies aimed at geographical areas or social classes that disproportionately contain large numbers of minorities. So uh, I guess that's good. I mean, imagine trying to um, fix, it's like you're trying to fix a wound without like looking at it or um, right, mentioning just, just, that there's blood. Just, <laughs> just, just throw a box of band-aids at it. it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> just and see if any of them stick. Does uh, It's not how you solve problems. But um, 
I would say D for effort. Now, the Educational Priority Zones, ZEP for short initiative, for example, funnels money to disadvantaged schools, districts, many of which contain elevated numbers of immigrant ethnic minorities and their children. However, politicians and policymakers have insisted that the goals of such policies are to better the lives of localities or of all people in need and have avoided highlighting the racial and ethnic implications of their initiatives. However, race, anti-Semitism, and prejudice against Muslims and non-Christians are still significant issues in France and have a very long history. Paris queer culture and life dates as far back as the Middle Ages, although at the time, homosexuality was a capital crime in France, often resulting in the death penalty. However, the French Revolution decriminalized homosexuality in 1791, making France one of the first countries to support LGBT communities in Europe. I think that's really interesting and really dope. And also to consider that globally oppressed people have been fighting for rights. You think of the indigenous people fighting for their land back and their human rights. Black people doing the same globally as well as LGBTQ community. Right. Um, this is kind of a tangent, but Dave Chappelle has come under fire in his oh, yeah. um, special I because he calls that. out the LGBTQ community. And I've heard it argued that the LGBTQ community is a very strong community. And if you offend them, and I consider myself part of it, but if you offend the LGBTQ community, they listen. People listen. Organizations listen and do something about it. Um, you know, we got um, the legalization of marriage in um, the United States, but uh, Black people just barely got Juneteenth. And I'm not saying one is better or worse than the other, just not quite the Just same. Just an interesting yeah. dynamic. Yeah. And part of that dynamic that cannot be ignored is the fact that the LGBTQ community has white men in it. True. You know? Yeah. Which might be one of the reasons why they are able to um, advance more. Um, right. And I am not super smart. I probably could have said that a better way, but hopefully you get it. <laughs> now, despite not always being legal, queer cultures in Paris flourished. In the beginning of the 19th century, the era commonly referred to as La Belle Époque, from 1871 and 1914, Paris became known as a center for LGBTQ culture. Not only did this era see the construction of the Eiffel Tower, but also the Paris Metro and the Paris Opera. But the Belle Epoque also gave Paris a reputation for being the bohemian and erotic capital of Europe and for inspiring queer culture in Paris to flourish. During this era, a whole network of underground LGBTQ venues emerged. These included secret salons, eclectic bars, cafes, and bathhouses, particularly in Montmartre and Le Halle districts. In 1897, Irish playwright and author Oscar Wilde was released from prison in Britain after being incarcerated for two years on sodomy charges. He fled to Paris and spent his last years there. He's buried at Père Lachaise Cemetery in Paris. I've actually been to his uh, his tomb. It's pretty cool. Get out of here! Are you yeah. serious? That's yeah. amazing! People leave kisses on his on his tomb hershey kisses no <laughs> they oh. kiss they put lipstick on and kiss it oh so you there's know what? kisses all over it <laughs> that is so beautiful yeah and you said it's, it's really a tomb? cool it's not just a well it's yeah stone? it's a grave but there's like a big statue on top of it mm -hmm. and uh so i just called it a tomb but i don't really know <laughs> oh well still very very cool thanks yeah for that. 
It is cool. During the interwar years, Paris was among the most liberal cities in the world and a haven for artists, writers, and free thinkers. Gay nightlife and drag balls flourished during the jazz age of the 1920s. The 20s sounded like super duper fun. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean... If I were, I would, I have no interest in going back in time as a black no, person no, in the world. But, but I mean, they were, yeah. they were pretty wild back I there. See, I could yeah. see that. I could see that. Now, <laughs> Paris was also home to a thriving lesbian subculture. Openly lesbian American playwright, poet, and novelist Natalie Clifford Barney hosted her legendary Fridays as she referred to her salon, which is a gathering of intellectuals for the exchange and discussion of ideas at her home. Sign me up. Regulars at Barney's soirees included Gertrude Stein and her longtime partner, Alice B. Toklas. This heyday, however, was tied to the prosperity of the Roaring Twenties and did not last long into the 1930s. The nation's politics lurched to the right following the Great Depression, and little of Paris's lesbian subculture survived the German occupation of the capital, which lasted from June 14, 1940 until August 25, 1944. Now, that that time would have sucked. <laughs> yeah, that's that's pretty bad. That's pretty bad. Um, no, so as much as the Nazi regime drove queer people even further underground, and in many cases sent them to their deaths, it did not wipe them out completely. And as Europe emerged from the shadow of war, so did this community rebuild and reassert itself. Famous Black Americans like James Baldwin found refuge there. His novel Giovanni's Room, about a bisexual man living in Paris, was inspired by a time he spent in Paris in the 1950s. Have you read it? I haven't. Me either. Uh, <laughs> in the 19... I'm ashamed. In the 1960s, there were indecent exposure laws which led to police harassment. Gay men were targeted more than lesbians were. Drag performances used male to female trans people because cisgender males were not allowed to perform in drag by police. What a shame. There were male to female trans people back then? Like they did the surgery? Uh, that's a good question. There must have been trans people then. I mean, surgery wise. I mean, when maybe the surgery wasn't a... Th I don't know how long the surgery has been around, but... Yeah, that's what I'm just looking. Whether or not you get the surgery you can still identify as trans. Right, but in the eyes of the police, wouldn't it just be a man dressed as a woman? Depend. It depends, I think. Um, I you mean, know. I'm, I'm thinking like the police who hate gay people, you know, like they're, they would just arrest them anyway, wouldn't yeah. you think? Yeah. I would think so. But I think when from now I am no expert on trans anything. So if I, this is just what I've learned from watching shows like Drag Race and Pose and listening to trans slash media podcasts. So I'm trying to learn. And if this comes out wrong, I apologize. But there, my understanding is there's, um, you know, from transition to full um, transness, um, there's there's like levels, right? And you're there you're as you get become more comfortable living um, as your true self, your appearance changes. So somebody who recently transitioned surgery or not may or may not present to the world as the gender that they identify as. But perhaps those who were allowed to do these drag performances were male to female trans people who passed. Does that make sense? Yeah, I guess so. So surgery or not, they passed. Um, I'm just looking and there were surgeries in the early 20th century. Okay. So, uh, it'd be interesting. I wish I had read more about this. <laughs> oh, ha, 
(laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, in 1952, an American trans woman had gender confirmation surgery in 1952. So, wow. So I I don't know. Yeah, that's really interesting. I I wish I had known more about this, the the surgery itself, but I don't think I think the, uh, the surgery is affirming, but you are still trans surgery. Well, yes, of course. Um, I'm just thinking, I mean, these police are harassing them Mm -hmm. and they're saying that drag performances can only be done by trans people. So that's why I'm like, well, what did the police consider to be trans people? That's all I'm saying. I mean, Uh uh, yeah. Uh Okay, well, cut that, cut out everything I said. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Okay, so to clarify, the police would only allow trans people who presented in a way that they must have believed was acceptable. Um, Somehow uh, or another. Yeah, we're not real clear on this one. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But anyway. (laughs) Anyway, let's keep going. Okay. (laughs) Gay bar raids that occurred during the 50s and 60s in which police would come in, arrest and harass patrons were often facilitated by the bar owners themselves. Why would they do that? Um, I don't know. Maybe the police threatened to shut them down. It's it's about the Benjamins at the end of the day. And when I watched the Stonewall riot documentary, um, it was the same in the United States. Um, In May of 1968, after the student worker uprising and the rise of feminism, now to be clear, that's white feminism, um, the Paris, which is a topic for another conversation, unless anybody wants a culture corner, but I feel like we've been talking a long time. So the Paris LGBTQ community created the Front Homosexual de Action Revolutionnaire, the Homosexual Revolutionary Action Front. It's been referred to as the French Stonewall. Um, And just to recap, the U.S. Stonewall uprising occurred in June of 1968. So just after. Yeah. Okay. By the 1970s, all police files on gay and lesbian crimes were destroyed, and certain laws against LGBT conduct and people were repealed. I think that is pretty. And that progressed, right? Yeah. In the late 1980s and early 90s, the rise of AIDS brought another wave of French LGBT activism. Prior to that, the virus appeared sporadically around the world. Originally identified as a gay disease because gay men were one of the primary groups afflicted, HIV and the syndrome it causes, acquired immune deficiency syndrome, became household terms and the number one threat to public health by the late 1980s. For several years after the Center for Disease Control first realized that the illness cropping up in communities around the country were all the work of the same virus. The American government did little to address the epidemic, a failure to act that many attribute to the fact that HIV AIDS was primarily affecting gay men, IV drug users, immigrants, and people of color, BIPOC people. Yeah. Twenty-four hours ago, I found out the person I'd been dating and seeing for the last six months as a con man. That is my sister, Emma. Andrew Tonks's lies had been so convincing, she'd invested $300,000 with him. However, the tables were about to turn on Andrew. 
What he didn't know was that Emma had discovered his real identity. But to get any chance of justice, Emma had to act like it was business as usual. Coming up in this series, and that's when murder, all this stuff goes through my mind. I'm really, really scared. I'm assuming Sarah has watched too much Netflix and figures I've been defrauding you. Couldn't be further from the truth. That's what this was, a real-life story that seems so unbelievable, but it was actually true. A true story that all starts with one simple swipe to the right. I'm Sarah Ferris. And I'm Emma Ferris. And this is my story, Conning the Con. We are gathered here today to give you permission to plan the wedding that you want. I'm Jessica Bishop. And I'm Sari Wienerman. And we're the hosts of the Bouquet Toss podcast. Today's couples have to juggle so many things, from family expectations to outdated traditions and what's currently trending. So to make it easier, we're going deep to figure out why we do weddings the way that we do, so you can decide what to keep and what to toss from your wedding day plans. You are cordially invited to subscribe to The Bouquet Toss wherever you get your podcasts or at evergreenpodcast.com. By the power vested in us, we pronounce you free to plan your day your way. Get ready for your starring role in a thrilling adventure full of hidden clues, immersive scenes, danger, and romance. That's right, it's June's Journey, and you play June Parker, an amateur detective investigating a series of mysteries. Ooh, you'll put your powers of observation to the test, sharpen your sleuthing skills, find objects, and claim rewards. The visuals are fire. It's like a party for your eyeballs. <laughs> As you play this thrilling adventure full of hidden clues, immersive scenes with danger and romance in full force. Whether you're craving a good mystery or just need to get away for a while, June's Journey is the perfect game for you. It really is a sweet escape. I like to play when I need a mental pick-me-up. There is a detective in all of us. Find your inner detective. Download June's Journey free today on the Apple App Store or Google Play. So now we're going to get into the early life of Thierry Paulin. Hit it, Beth. Thierry Paulin was born on November 28, 1963 in Fort-de-France, Martinique. Martinique is an island territory of France and is located in the Caribbean. Thierry's parents, Rose Helene and Guy Paulin, were teenagers when he was born and split up shortly after his birth. Guy then moved to France, leaving Rose Helene to fend for herself and her baby. Being just a teenager at the time, Rose Helene had trouble figuring out motherhood. So Thierry was then raised in Martinique by his paternal grandmother. But she was a restaurateur who regarded him as a nuisance, and she had little time to give Thierry much attention or affection. At the age of 10, Thierry moved back in with his mother, who had remarried and had five other children. There are reports that his mother regularly beat him and often woke him up by dumping cold water on him. Yikes. But maybe he was a really, really hard sleeper. Um, (laughs) But still not cool. (laughs) Not cool, yeah. So Thierry's behavior soon became erratic and he was violent towards other children. Then at the age of 12, he threatened his principal with a kitchen knife. Eventually, his mother asked his father to take Thierry to France to live with him. His father accepted in order to avoid paying alimony. Wow. Great guy. Mm Mm-hmm. 
Thierry then moved to Toulouse, France, to live with his father, who had also remarried and had two more kids. And as a mixed-race student among white peers, Thierry did not do well. He did not like school, he didn't have many friends, and his grades were poor. Just a young kid trying to fit in, right? And uh, it's impossible to do. Pretty sad. Yeah. Yeah. Now, he decided to leave his father's house at the age of 16, crashing on his friend's couches. He failed three apprenticeships in a row and disappointed. Pointed, he started his mandatory military service early at the age of 17, but he didn't fare any better there. He was bullied by his fellow soldiers for the color of his skin and his homosexuality. On November 14, 1982, while on leave from the military, Paulin robbed an old woman in her grocery store, threatening her with a knife. But the grocer knew him as a customer, so he was found and arrested. And in June 1983, he was sentenced to two years in prison. However, the sentence was suspended and he was released. But this spelled the end of his military career and he was dishonorably discharged. So it is timeline time. <laughs> what it, what t- what's what's up, Beth? <laughs> In 1984, after being discharged from the army, Paulin learned that his mother and her family had moved to Nanterre, a western suburb of Paris. He went there to live with them, but their relationship was hostile. Now, do we know which one of his parents was white and which one was black? I don't know. Okay, I don't either. Um, not sure if uh, not sure how significant it is to his identity or story, but yeah, I did watch a video about him, and I forget what it was, but it'll be in the show notes, mm-hmm. and uh, it showed him as a child and his grandmother, who's his paternal grandmother, was black, so that would indicate that his father was black. But you know, it's just a video on TV, so I don't know. Mm, okay. Well, uh, close enough uh, for fact for me. So I'll take it. <laughs> now, Pauline failed at several jobs before becoming a waiter in Le Paradis Latin, a cabaret in Paris known for its drag shows. There, in addition to waiting tables, he also did drag performances, singing tunes by his favorite singer, Eartha Kitt. Uh, His mother was once invited to watch her son's performance, but she left the club a few seconds after the beginning of his act. That's awful. Yeah, that is awful. It was at the Paradis Latin that Paulin met Jean-Thierry Maturan. Maturan, 19 at the time, was born in French Guyana. Pauline fell in love with him and they soon became lovers. Much to Pauline's mother's disgust, the couple started partying hard together. They attended many parties and were known at all the hotspots in Paris. To afford their nightlife, they used credit cards that they could not afford to pay. So they started pickpocketing around the city, stealing checkbooks, credit cards, and prescription drugs to resell. By the end of the summer, Rose Helene had had enough and she kicked Pauline out. So the couple moved into a hostel. Both of them were unemployed at that time and no money was coming in. That's when Pauline suggested that they rob old ladies. In the 1980s, there were about a quarter million women over the age of 65 who lived alone in Paris. These unsuspecting women became Pauline and Maturan's targets. The couple's MO was to follow a woman to her home after she returned from shopping. Pauline would then come up close behind her as she opened the door. He would push the woman into her apartment with a hand over her mouth and Maturan would follow, closing the door behind them. Pauline would then demand to know where her money was kept 
kept, often tying the victims up and beating them to get information. Other tactics of torture were used to get this information. They twisted the fingers of victims. Some victims' feet were burned. In one case, a wine bottle was smashed over a victim's head. Old ladies. In another, a victim was forced to drink drain cleaner. Yeah, that's the Ah. worst one. Terrible. Yes. According to Maturon, his job was to search the apartment for money, and Pauline was the one who killed the women, mostly by strangling or asphyxiating them. On October 5th, 1984, Germaine Petitot, 91, was attacked in her home near Montmartre. She was bound and beaten by two individuals, and she was robbed of all of her savings. She actually survived this attack, but was too traumatized to give a detailed description of her attackers. The very same day in the name during 9th arrondissement, the body of 83-year-old Anna Barbière Pontus was found dead in her apartment. She had been attacked, tortured, and asphyxiated beneath a pillow. 300 francs were stolen, which amounted to approximately $50 U.S. The same day. On October 9th, firefighters were called to put out a fire in an apartment building in Montmartre, and they discovered the body of 89-year-old Suzanne Foucault. She had been bound and had a plastic bag wrapped over her head. Her watch were 300 francs, and 500 francs in cash were missing. Between November 5th and November 12th, mainly in the 18th arrondissement of Paris, but also in neighboring areas, six more bodies were found. On November 5th, Iona Segaresco, a 71-year-old retired school teacher, was found bound with an electrical cord and beaten to death in her apartment. Oh, my God. Yeah, that's pretty despicable. Iona had been dead for approximately two days when she was found. Extraordinary violence had been used in her murder. She was found with nose, jaw, and rib fractures, and she'd been strangled to death with a scarf. 10,000 francs in treasury bonds were stolen. Two days later, on November 7th, Alice Benaime was found dead in her apartment by her son Andre just two hours after she'd been killed. She'd been beaten and made to drink cleaning fluid to force her to disclose the location of 400 francs that she owned. She was 84 years old. Jeez. Yeah. The next day, Marie Choi, 80, was found dead next door, bound in steel wire, her skull fractured. She'd been tortured and gagged with a dishcloth. The killer stole 200 francs. The day after, Maria Miko Diaz, 75, was found bound and gagged. She had also been stabbed and eventually asphyxiated with a cloth. The killers took 300 francs. On November 12th, 81-year-old Jeannet Laurent was found dead in her apartment, bound with electrical cord. Only a few hours later and half a mile away, 77-year-old Paulet Victor was found dead in her apartment. She had been dead for at least a week. The similarities between the cases were obvious. All of the victims were elderly women living alone in or near Montmartre. The women were bound, gagged, and beaten, tortured, strangled, and asphyxiated. The apartments were then ransacked in search of money and other valuables. In all cases, the motive appeared to be robbery. Some reports allege that Pauline singled out women who seemed unpleasant or unfriendly when he engaged them in conversation. But Pauline later told police, quote, 
I tackled the weakest of them, unquote. The press started referring to the mysterious attacker as the monster of Montmartre. There was a public outcry and people were scared. It was common to see the elderly shopping in groups or being accompanied by local police. The street markets where elderly women would normally gather to chat were empty. The Parisian police went into hyperdrive, deploying hundreds of officers to monitor Montmartre, hoping to calm the locals' concerns and to prevent further attacks. Sixty men were arrested, and the mayor of Paris actually offered security systems to the elderly for free. Wow. Wow. At the same time, Paulin and Matron had no cares in the world. They were leading an extravagant lifestyle, spending their nights dancing, drinking champagne, and snorting cocaine. Doing drugs! <laughs> the money that Paulin and Matron stole funded their lifestyle. They made a lot of new acquaintances who used the couple for their money. In late November, to the bafflement of the police, the killing stopped. Paulin and Matron had decided to go to Toulouse to stay for a few months at the home of Paulin's father. But Guy Paulin was unable to accept his son's boyfriend and violent fights ensued, ending when Paulin and Matron broke up. Matron went back to Paris while Paulin stayed behind. Matron did not commit any more crimes. Paulin dreamed of running his own business, and he put his effort and remaining money into a company he called Transform Star, a talent agency for trans artists in Toulouse. Mm. But the business failed around a year later, and Paulin returned to Paris in 1985. And now I I appreciate the energy, right, in starting something really great. (laughs) Yeah, but we can't forget about the people you killed before, (laughs) and if we could just rewind and if he had started out with this business idea, idea perhaps yeah. who knows but Palan then had to figure out a way to get food and shelter so he squatted at lovers' homes and in opposition to his violent tendencies he was known by friends and lovers as kind and considerate some people have referred to him as sort of a Jekyll and Hyde type character between December 20th 1985 and January 31st 1986 the monster of Montmartre struck again hmm. but this time around police noticed that the killer sought quicker, less cruel methods to murder his victims, unlike his previous M.O. Mm. But just like the previous M.O., he would follow the unsuspecting women while they were out shopping. Once at their front doors, he'd push them inside, kill and rob them, either strangling or asphyxiating them. The majority of crimes took place in Montmartre. During this period, Paulin killed 77-year-old André Ladame, 83-year-old Yvonne Caron, 77-year-old Yvonne Shabe, 81-year-old Majem Jeblum, 83-year-old Françoise Vendôme, and 76-year-old Virginie Lebret. Short period of time. Yeah. Uh, now, Paulan began working for a company called Fulari, which was involved somehow in theater and entertainment. Uh, it's a clear it's clear his heart has a calling. Uh, yeah. Now, in December of 1945, Fulari planned a promotional party accompanied by media coverage. The party was titled roughly translated A Glimpse of Hell. Sounds, Sounds fun. Like it's well, <laughs> I'm thinking of um, Montero by Lil Nas X. Where he's dancing on, you know, the video, Lil Nas X is a, is a black gay rapper and um, musician. And he had a video that was like the Internet was ablaze saying he was going to hell. So he made a video 
with him dancing on a pole, giving the devil a lap dance. And the and the pole the pole went all the way down to hell. Down to and hell. that is where he gave and this that's where he gave the devil the lap dance. And this reminds me of that. See, queer people have been out here doing this work for a long time. Yeah. And yeah. I wonder if Lil Nas X knew about this when he I made don't know, his video. but it, it sounds like maybe it's something that a theme that comes back. Perhaps. Because, you know, uh, Christians and I don't know, right wingers and stuff are always saying that LGBTQ people are going to hell. So, well, might, might as well, well have might a party. Well party. Yeah. Hell yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there were to be singers, dancers and mime artists for entertainment. Pauline's job was to find the venue and sell the evening to local television channels, which he did. The night of the party was May 24th, 1986. 4,000 people showed up. Wow. But only 450 people actually paid to get in. Well, was it lit though? <laughs> now the party the party ended up bankrupting the company and Paula no longer had a job. The murders resumed. On June 14th, 1986, 85-year-old Ludmila Lieberman, an American widow, was attacked and murdered in her home. The police were unable to identify the killer, though the investigators had a few clues. Police had determined through fingerprint evidence that the perpetrator of the most recent string of murders was the same individual who had committed the earlier murders attributed to the monster of Montmartre. Police had collected the fingerprints from about 150,000 suspects. Wow. Wow. But they were unable to match the fingerprints with the killer. Police actually had Paulan's fingerprints on file from his first crime when he had attacked the grocer. But at that time, French police had no central database for fingerprints, let alone a digital database. Each fingerprint had to be looked at manually, which was a cumbersome process. I'll say. On August 5th, Pauline beat his drug dealer half to death with a baseball bat after the dealer sold him subpar cocaine. Mm. The dealer went to the police. That's how bad it was. The drug dealer went to the police. Wow. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Pauline was arrested in Alfortville, a city near Paris. Pauline was sentenced to 16 months for the assault, spending one year in Fresnes prison. His fingerprints were taken, but again, there was no database for fingerprints. Wow. What a, I mean, just, I, it sounds like an insurmountable challenge for there not to be like an easy way to access these fingerprints. Right. Um, but that's what the, that's what was available at the time. Uh, it was in prison that Paulan was diagnosed as HIV positive, which at that time was effectively a death sentence. Paulan was released from prison in early September of 1987, knowing that he was living on borrowed time. Determined to make the best of his remaining time before he died from AIDS, Pauline frequented a nightclub called Le Palais in Montmartre. Mm-hmm. <laughs> le Palais in Montmartre. Uh, le, le poisson, <laughs> le poisson. <laughs> he, 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 ho, ho, ho. <laughs> He was described as polite and charming, and he spent generously. He boasted about setting up a modeling agency and lied about having glamorous and theatrical jobs. But he had no job and no money, so he went back to his old ways of murdering elderly women for cash. One police officer described it as if Palan was murdering the women as though he was going to an ATM to retrieve money, like it was just a bank transaction to him. Yeah, when he said that, I was like, oh, geez, wow. Yeah, that really paints a picture. <laughs> 
there. Yeah, it does. On November 25th, 1987, two more women were murdered. Rachel Cohen, 79, and Belt Finaltieri, 87. Cohen died and Pollen left Finaltieri for dead. Two days later, Pollen murdered his last victim, a 73-year-old woman named Genevieve Germain. I really like the name Genevieve. Yeah, it's, it's pretty beautiful. Rest in power. Uh, but uh, nobody saw the perpetrator and there was no connection between the killer and the victims. Police had zero suspects. The press had a heyday and people in Paris were terrified. So when the scammer uses the hypnotic method of building rapport, then they create dysfunctional, delusional reality. That's how a scam begins, convincing the mark that it makes perfect sense to hand over their money to a con artist. The Scams and Cons podcast tells you how scams are run. You'll hear how people are convinced to buy fake art, buy machines that print money, or steal your house. I get a phone call from my wife and she let me know that they had decided to move all our stuff out. I can no longer do anything about it except go through an eviction. And you'll hear it from the experts, people who run the cons. So we go to your bank, you go in and get 6,000 cash, give us each 3,000, we give you this. Uh You go home and what you find out is cut up newspaper. It's fun to know how the trick is done. And that's what Scams and Cons is all about. Listen at scamsandcons.com or wherever fine podcasts are found. So now we're going to dive into the investigation and the arrest. Splish, splash, Beth. On November 28th, 1986, with the money he stole from his last victims, Paulin threw a party at a restaurant for his 24th birthday. He is only 24, Jesus Christ. Wow. And invited 50 people. No expense was spared. The following night, he threw another party and invited 20 people. Wow. Uh, But as I just imagine it being so lit as Paulan (laughs) was partying and celebrated, Berthe Finalteri unexpectedly recovered and was able to give an accurate description of her attacker. Berthe stated that her attacker was a mixed race man in his 20s with hair like Carl Lewis. Carl Lewis. Uh, who is Carl Lewis? The the guy who sang the national anthem that goes and the land of the. uh Oh. I think he's a track star. That guy? Yeah, I think he was. a. Oh! Yeah, he's a track star. Oh, my gosh. Okay, I know Carl Lewis. Uh, bleached blonde and had an earring in his left ear. A composite sketch was done. On December 1st, 1987, Pauline was arrested while walking down the street when a local police inspector recognized him from Fennel Terry's description and the composite. His fingerprints were compared to the ones found at some of the crime scenes, and they matched. Got him. After two days in custody, Paulan confessed to his crimes, but police did not know his accomplice's name. So when they confronted Paulan about the drain cleaner used on Alice Benaim, Paulan denied that he did that and blamed Maturan. Police then knew his accomplice's name. Tricky. Oh, yeah. Look, he snitched. Uh, <laughs> Paulan confessed to 21 murders, although police could only confirm 18. He was sent to jail to await trial. 
However, in early 1988, Paulin's body began to succumb to AIDS, and he was hospitalized several months later in a state of near paralysis, suffering from both meningitis and tuberculosis. Now we're going to get into where are they now. Uh, Paulin died on April 16, 1989. He never faced trial and he was never convicted of his crimes. In 1991, Jean-Thierry Maturin was found personally responsible for nine of the murders. He was sent sentenced to life, but was released on probation in 2009, having spent 21 years in prison, counting the time he was imprisoned before trial. Just as an aside... In 1987, Maturin appeared on a popular French TV variety show as a male stripper. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. To these American eyes, it's very weird strippers on TV. (laughs) Well, I mean, maybe maybe in the 80s. But now we have uh, P-Valley. Um, a yeah, show about, I'm just and, talking about like a variety show where the, like there's singers and dancers and strippers. It's just two Americans. I think that's that's pretty weird. It's too much. <laughs> yeah. It's 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 too much for Marianne in Wisconsin. So we can't yes, put it on exactly. The air. There you go. <laughs> um, <laughs> so uh, before he died, Paulan had blamed Matulan for the murders. But Matulan said Paulan was the dominant partner in the relationship. That Matulan had only searched the apartments for money, and it was Paulan who had tortured and killed the women. At trial, Maturin's attorney argued, quote, without Paulin, he would not have been dangerous. He was not before meeting him and he is not anymore, unquote. And as far as we know, Maturin has stayed out of trouble since his release. Wow. So investigators have always suspected that there was another accomplice, someone who replaced Jean-Thierry Maturin, but Paulin refused to talk about it. And a third man was never identified, if there even was one. A French movie called J'ai pas sommeil, meaning I can't sleep, was based on this story. Ooh. I tried to find it to watch it, but I couldn't I I couldn't find it anywhere. Yeah. Nah, me neither. Um now what made him snap as well as uh, our takeaways. What do you got, Beth? Well, as per usual, this guy had a shitty childhood. So Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that compounded with being black and gay in a society that did not accept blacks and gays uh, probably had a lot to do with it. Yeah, yeah. A lot of people have surmised that he chose elderly women to kill because his grandmother had treated him like shit, mm. which is possible. It's also possible that he just chose elderly women because they were easy targets. Or there could have been an element of both. Who knows? Could have been. I mean, he said it though, right? Didn't he say? I don't think they were. He picked them because they were easy. Oh, I thought we quoted him earlier. He did say that um, he chose them because they were easy targets. But people say things, but they don't always know why they do things. You know? Mm, Yes. OG of true crime. (laughs) So the violence committed against a lot of the women would suggest that he harbored hatred towards women. Yes. But I also find it interesting that he was not so violent once Maturin left the picture. So I wonder if he was so violent in order to dominate Maturin, who said that he was the dominant partner 
uh, to scare Martron. Um, like, what else is this guy capable of? Or, right. or maybe the yeah. two of them together uh, were like oil and water. You know how some people feed off of each other. Yeah. So, in any case, when Martron was no longer his accomplice, he no longer felt the need to be so violent. I guess for whatever reason. That's an a really interesting point. Um, and I was thinking, I wonder if there was some sort of um, romantic sexual gratification by the two oh, of them yeah. engaging yeah. in in such violent acts. Right. Um, it wasn't. It, it didn't come up in anything I saw, but it no. did cross my mind. Yeah. Um, I can yeah, agree. Everything I read uh, indicated there was no sexual element, but we don't know what you know what they. Yeah. Were- doing after the crimes maybe it turned them on who knows maybe yeah um but i couldn't agree more with you beth um (laughs) uh this is an interesting case uh i certainly feel very bad for the young man that paulan was um not an not an excuse, but maybe an explanation. Now, there are uh, a lot of challenges with being BIPOC and queer. And um, when it's unacceptable to be you, to exist, um, that's challenging. It's a form of oppression. And I've heard some people say it feels like violence. It's violence upon your existence. And I speak for myself. Um, I've been so angry in my life having to exist in a queer female body that I punished myself. Um, and Palan took it out on others. That was my right, thought. Right. Um, and again, not an explanation, not an excuse, just an explanation. Th- yeah. This shit is, is hard. Um, yeah. And just, yeah, his victims were very vulnerable um, uh, individuals, elderly women. And that's usually what serial killers go after. So yeah. uh, he... Um, I was, a forever. No, that's not what I mean to say. Uh, you get it. I can't finish yeah, what yeah. I, I thought, but you get it. Anyway, uh, now we're going to get into how not to get murdered. So if you love true crime and you don't want to die, here's a tip for you. <laughs> this segment is not intended to be victim blaming. We thought of this segment because I read somewhere that a lot of people listen to true crime because they want to know what they can do to be safer. This is not meant to blame the victims. It's just learning from other people's experiences. So this comes from our fruity Lindsay, and uh, she shared some information on how to be a better bystander. Um, so if some foolishness or is happening around you to somebody who might be um, experiencing being bullied um, verbally or physically. Um, there, There's a whole strategy on how you can help. Um, so uh, other than, you know, like talking to yourself afterwards, like, oh, I should have, I could have. Um, so you, what you can do is show up in support if someone is being harassed. There are five Ds. And I'll put the, she has a link and a PDF with oh, some awesome. details on how to do this better. But just real quick, the five Ds for being a better bystander are distract, delegate, document, delay, debrief, and direct the harasser. So um, 
there will be more information on that. On that, um, she said that she uh, thought of this when she was listening to our episode on Winston Mosley, uh, and we talked about the bystander effect. And it's just not uh, only concerning incidents of violence or, or crime, but can also happen in again bullying, racial driven attacks, sexual harassment, like in the workplace, or just re- just regular ass harassment. Yeah, uh, yeah. Woo. Uh, and um, so she's an educator. Um, and I think all of us um, listening can um, learn how to better respond to these situations. So I have a link. Agreed. And I'll share it. Um, and uh, thank you for that, Lindsay. Yeah, thank you. So now we're going to shout into the, oh, we're going to shout. And that's it. Uh, we're <laughs> into gonna the abyss. Yeah, now we're, we're everybody. <laughs> let's go. Ah. I've, I've thought about it. I've thought about it. Uh, I was thinking it might make me feel better, but uh, there's nowhere I can do that without somebody calling the police. So I'll just keep it locked up inside. Anyway, we're going to move on to the shout out portion of our show where we shout out any content by or about any othered or marginalized people uh, and any true crime goodies. I. Y'all probably already know this, but Squid Game's on Netflix, y'all? A Korean series about hundreds of cash-strapped players uh, who accept a strange invitation to compete in children's games. Uh, And inside, a tempting prize awaits with deadly high stakes. And... uh, I don't know if you have you watched it yet, Beth. Is it on I your? I watched. I watched some of it. I haven't uh, watched a lot of it though. So, oh, I finished it in two days. And oh wow! <laughs> I loved it so much. Um, also, an episode of the podcast TED Talks Daily, uh, and uh, this uh, was in my feed, but I was encouraged to listen to it earlier than I normally would have because of Bree. Bree is a fruity uh, and a uh, patron, and uh, it's titled "The Black History of Twerking" Ooh. and how it taught me self love. Wow! Uh, and Lizzo is the TED Talker, and it's oh, about wow, Very yeah, cool. it's uh, you know she twerks a lot on social yeah, media, yeah. and you love to see it. Uh, and it's about the history of twerking which has been taken out of context and perverted by white media and culture and really interesting i mean my me and my kids twerk all the time and i'm like (laughs) this is just what black people do when we're happy so twerk away (laughs) uh what do you got so i've been binging the podcast maintenance phase this week it's a podcast about the history and culture of diets and dieting in the u.s their tagline is wellness and weight loss debunked and decoded. Ooh. <laughs> and the hosts are LGBT folks, Michael Hobbs from You're Wrong About and Aubrey ah. Gordon, a writer from the website and podcast, Your Fat Friend. Oh. And it's really interesting. I mean, I'm... Uh, it's like all I've been listening to. I finished it all. <laughs> yeah. Really? So it's yeah. a series. Yeah. Well, okay. it's a it's a podcast. So they just do a different subject every week. About, oh, okay. Exciting. Yeah, like, like they cover the keto diet. They talk about Weight Watchers. They talk about eating disorders. Mm. They talk about school lunches. Oh, dang. Uh, Marianne Williamson. <laughs> oh, girlfriend. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, they get into all kinds of different subjects, and it's just really interesting. Oh, hell yeah. Well, yeah. S- color me subscribed. Uh, so those uh, uh, shout outs again are for Squid Games on Netflix, a podcast, TED Talks Daily, this particular episode titled The Black History of Twerking and How It Taught Me Self-Love, Dash by Lizzo, and the Maintenance Phase podcast. 
uh, wherever you get your podcasts. Yeah. Well, that is all for today. <laughs> Where can the people find us in the meantime, Beth? Our website is fruitloopspod.com. Our Facebook page is Fruit Loops Pod, and our discussion group is Fruit Loops Pod Discussion on Facebook. We are also on Twitter and Instagram at Fruit Loops Pod, and links to our sources will be in our footnotes. If you want to support the show, you can send us a donation on the Cash App. Just Google Fruit Loops Pod Cash App, or you can become a monthly patron through Podbean. This will help us pay for things like our website and pod hosting. There's no minimum and no commitment. Even a dollar would help. And as always, we have merch for sale on our website. Hoodie season's coming, y'all. Yeah. Uh, Now, this is a weekly podcast and new episodes drop every Thursday. So until next time, look alive, y'all. It's crazy out there. On the morning of August 1st, 1966, shots ring out from the observation deck of the clock tower on the University of Texas campus. It marks the infamous beginning of the modern era of mass shootings in America. You're listening to Stop the Killing podcast. Join us as we take you behind the crime scene tape to explain global mass shootings and mass attacks. I'm Sarah Ferris, but more importantly, this is Catherine Schweitz, the former head of the FBI's active shooter program. I spent five years as the FBI's top executive looking for answers to the mass shooting crisis. I've been at the shooting scenes. I've traced heroic acts of bravery. And I've sat silently and listened to the heart-wrenching stories from survivors. Amongst this horror, there is hope. We all hold the key to stop the killing. You just need to know how to unlock the door. Download Stop the Killing and be part of the solution. Search Stop the Killing on Apple, Spotify, and all the usual suspects. My name is Bill Huffman, and I am a former Cleveland News producer. And I am now the host of the podcast, Who Killed? I began the show focusing on the unsolved murder of Amy Mahalovic, and now each week I explore a different case with a focus on some of the victims who don't get the attention they deserve. I have a deep catalog of over 225 episodes, so there is a guarantee there will be something for you. Who Killed is an Evergreen Podcasts, Killer Podcasts, and Slow Burn Media production. Subscribe today wherever you get your favorite shows.